You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Thank you, David and worship team and everyone who has participated in the service and you who are here participating in this service with us together today. As has already been mentioned today, it's Palm Sunday, and there are so many topics from Scripture that we could address. In fact, I typically do not talk about the crucifixion on Palm Sunday, but we do not have to break stride in the Gospel of John study that we're in right now in order to talk about the crucifixion. And why not talk about it today and on Good Friday? Is it Is there a more important topic in Scripture than Jesus' sacrificial death in our place for us? Well, so that you can rest easy. I understand some of you are thinking, resurrection. The Scripture sort of considers it all one event. Um, Jesus' death, his arrest, uh, trial, burial, resurrection, death, burial, resurrection, it's all one story. So we're going to spend extra time on this particular story. Um, Each of the four gospel writers had a different way of approaching the events of that particular day when Jesus was crucified. We've got four gospel writers. John has his way of presenting it. The other three have their way of presenting it. Each one Uh, employed a different theological bent. They had a different audience in mind. So you're going to have some covering certain aspects of the crucifixion, others covering other aspects of the crucifixion. But but exact same story, just elements that are included here, left out there, depending on the writer's purpose. So our plan for today is to illustrate John's theological bent and his purpose for writing this book, which he just barely touches on in the text today. We're going to get to it in a great deal more detail in a few weeks. But we're thinking about Jesus' sacrificial death for sinners. Now, I just want to say, I don't, not nearly as many children, smaller children in this service as the first. Um, you might want to pray for the parents in the other service. There's a lot to process here. I understand that. I'm trying to be as careful as I can. This is a difficult topic that we're thinking about. Um, We're going to cover a lot of ground this morning. We're going to read a lot of scripture uh, today as a lot of the pieces hopefully begin to fall in place for you. And as we begin to see this bigger picture that John was painting, which in reality was the picture that God was painting and wanted us to see. Since the text is long, we will not stand for the reading as we typically do. But before we begin, would you please uh, bow in prayer with me? Our Father, um, we come to this text to think about Jesus' death for us with mixed emotions. We are horrified along with Those who had long been with him, not his 11 disciples, but except for John, uh, but for the women who had come with him and many others who had followed him and stood and watched at a distance. And we stand and watch in horror as the 
King of glory, the Lord of glory, is put to death in this awful way. We also recognize that this one act assures eternal life for many, for all who will believe that Jesus died for them. May we understand more this morning of what that means. Open our hearts and fill them full. Cause us to be grateful for the one who died for us and also to desire to take up our cross and follow him every day. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version as we begin in John 19, 16, where Jesus' trial before Pilate, the one that we talked about last week, has only just concluded. John 19, 16. So he delivered him... So Pilate delivered Jesus over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and and went out, bearing his own cross to a place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. So to whom did Pilate deliver Jesus, we know the Roman soldiers would be the one who would carry out the execution, but there is every sense here that that Pilate delivered Jesus over to the priest who wanted Jesus crucified. Pilate acquiesced, and they had given, or he had given them what they wanted. Uh, It's appropriate that the high priest was the one to put Jesus to death. John tells us that Jesus went out, as in outside the camp, outside the city walls, outside the gate. Just like Adam and Eve Eve were sent out of Eden to the east after they had sinned. And the scapegoat was sent out of the camp, outside the camp in ancient Israel, bearing the sins of the people. And criminals were executed outside the city. So Jesus was taken out and led to Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Now, I've been to the place where a lot of people say, this is where Jesus was crucified. There's this big rock escarpment, rock face, and it looks exactly like a skull. And not only that, it's up on a hill, and behind it, there is a tomb, an ancient tomb that had been hewn out of the rock uh, of that That day, during that time. And so, it's very convincing to me. But scholars are far from convinced that that is the place that Jesus was crucified. We don't know the exact location. Except that it was surely outside the city walls. And most likely on a hill. I've even heard some uh, pretty good arguments, in fact, for people thinking that Jesus was crucified on the Mount of Olives. I have to get my head around that, but the Mount of Olives is east of the city. So, possibly, I don't know. Jesus was forced to carry his own cross, likely the crossbar of the traditional cross that we see so often, just like this cross behind me. Uh, It wouldn't have been this large, it wouldn't have been that heavy, he would have been able to carry it, although the beating that he had endured caused him to be unable to do it all on his own, so Uh, Simon of Cyrene, as the others tell us, was uh, 
recruited to help carry the cross for them. Some crosses, not all crosses were like this one. Some were in the form of an X, while others like, an, like a Y. The victim was either tied or nailed to the cross. And how do we know that Jesus was nailed to the cross? Psalm 22 tells us that that was what was going to happen. That was a prophecy of Jesus' death. But when Jesus showed Thomas where the nails had been in his wrist, his hands wouldn't have been able to hold the weight. So it would have been in his wrist. And you know, there are some nerves in there that are just awful to think about this horrible execution method of crucifixion. So we know that a spike was driven through both of his wrists and also one spike driven through his feet. Now, that spike being driven through the feet served a purpose. We know that when a person was crucified, their body would lean forward, and that made it difficult to breathe. It would slump down. And the nail through the feet enabled them to push up their weight, their push their legs upward and relieve uh, the, the, the suffocation, but it would prolong the agony. Some victims lived two to three days, but the severity of Jesus' beating probably shortened his time on the cross. Although we know from what we're told here and in many places that Jesus determined the moment of his death. Jesus was crucified between two thieves, we're told, in the other Gospels. If I give information that's not in the Gospel of John, it's in the others. Uh, so he was crucified between two thieves, fulfilling Isaiah 53, 9, which also points to a burial in a rich man's tomb. More about that later. Verse 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. This was very common. There would be a placard detailing the kind of crime the person had committed that caused him to be crucified. Many of the Jews read this inscription. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. Three different languages. They wanted to make sure nobody missed why this person was being crucified. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate, who was fed up with the priest at this point, said, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. One of the reasons we think... There were four soldiers who were assigned to a crucifixion team, if you could call it that. How horrible. Also, his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, going from his shoulders down to his knees probably. Woven in one piece from top to bottom and therefore much more valuable. And they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots or throw dice essentially for it. To see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which, which says. They divided my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. Jesus, uh, John, excuse me. The, the apostle John has given us 
only a snapshot of the events on that faithful day. And we are looking at a portion of the snapshot. There is a lot of irony in this story as the truth is revealed even through sarcasm. Such as the placard over Jesus' head that revealed him to be as he was in reality and is the king of Israel. And not only that, the king of the Jews, the king of kings and lord of lords. Every detail was accomplished according to God's plan as written in Isaiah and Zechariah and in the case of the garments, Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, Right down to the very detail. When I worked at TVR, you can imagine that after summer camp, we had a lot of lost and found on our hands. And one of the perks of being on staff, uh, in addition to the, my goodness, what, 50 cents an hour that you got for working there was that after the summer, all the clothes would be laid out and the summer staff, after 30 days after uh, summer camp had ended, the clothes would be laid out. Full-time staff would be able to go through and see if there was anything that they wanted. Now, the policy was we wait for 30 days and then we'll go through through the items as a perk But some of the staff interpreted this, I'll wear this for 30 days. And if nobody claims it, then it's surely mine and not somebody else's. There were likely, what a scene this would have been. As you see people probably standing around to watch what's going to happen. Likely a lot of people standing around as the soldiers, you know, roll the dice for Jesus' tunic. This was beyond adding insult to injury. Look, we, we tend to think of a cross lifted up. We think of it as a, a long pole in the ground with a cross beam, and he's lifted high above everybody else. But likely, <clears throat> this didn't go too high. And so that the people, as they were passing by on this major road into Jerusalem, would, would be just barely below eye level with the person being crucified. And so their insults would be mingled with spit as they showed their contempt for the person. What is it about human nature that we just get so wrapped up and when people are, are being tortured, we want to see it and we want to give it to them. Man, you, it's terrible, isn't it? When you're... You know, anybody that's opposed to Liam Neeson, you just want to see him really. Just hurt him. Don't just kill him. Hurt him. What is wrong with us? There's just something about human nature that goes that way. The shame for the person being crucified was intense. One of the worst aspects of crucifixion especially for the modest Jews, was that those being executed were often stripped all the way down. So, why is that a big deal? Think about this. What happened to Adam and Eve once they sinned? Their eyes were open, and they realized not only their guilt, but their shame as well. And they sought to cover themselves, but it took our gracious God To cover them properly. And now the second Adam 
is being crucified for our sins and God uncovers him so that he bears not only our guilt, but our shame as well. If we are not covered by the blood of Jesus' sacrifice as payment for our sins, then we stand fully exposed before God. Hebrews 3, 13, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So, when you think about this picture, how silly it is to think that we can be good enough to stand before God and say, of course he'll let me in. I mean, why wouldn't he? What's not to like? Our sin has caused us to be exposed. How we need a Savior to cover us with his righteousness. If the Father required Jesus to die for our sins, we must have been utterly incapable of living without sin. And we are even less capable of atoning for our sins. The gift of God in the mercy of repentance and the gift of his grace in leading us to believe that Jesus died in our place. We pick up at the end of verse 24. So the soldiers did these things. Isn't it interesting? The writers don't go into much detail. You don't even find much written about it in ancient literature. It was an awful, awful way to die. And it was a shameful thing. As I've said many times, people would not talk about crucifixions in polite company. If somebody mentioned the crucifixion, it was very awkward. Everybody just went silent. It's kind of like, oh, shouldn't have said that. Because of, it was, of its horror. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, who was most likely Salome, the wife of Zebedee, and, and the mother of John and James. John and James would have been Jesus' first cousins. Mary, the wife of Clopas. We see Clopas on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. And Mary Magdalene. Notice it's the women who are there or who are mentioned. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now, who is he? Most likely the apostle John. That was the one Jesus was speaking with, the beloved disciple. This is a tender scene. Jesus would have entrusted his mother into the care of his siblings. Or he, you, you would think, but where were they? We don't know that they were standing by Jesus. They were probably hiding out because it was shameful to be identified. But here was John, the apostle John, and all of these women. While Jesus' family, other than his mother Mary, were not believers at this point. This says a whole lot about our Christian family, our church family, how important it is. 
Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there. So they took a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had finished the sour wine, he said, It is finished, we know, he cried out in a loud voice. It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now the other gospels tell us that the first hours of his crucifixion, Jesus was offered wine with myrrh. It was kind of like a narcotic that would deaden the pain a little bit, dull his senses, and Jesus refused it because he suffered fully for us. But now, here at the end, just before he cries out, it is finished, he took sour wine to moisten his lips and, and probably his parched throat so that he could cry out with a loud voice, it is finished! If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, can you fathom the impact of these words shouted for you? Jesus' death was in place of your spiritual death. He had completed a life of total obedience to the Father and had shed his blood as a once-for-all sacrifice that would never again need be repeated. And for those who believe this sacrifice fully, removes their sins. Not only covers their sins, but removes their sins. Even though Jesus likely spoke in Aramaic, John wrote in Greek, and the word he used for what Jesus cried was tetelestai. It is finished. A requirement has been met. Paid in full. Tetelestai is the perfect tense of this particular Verb And the perfect tense in Greek, the perfect tense indicates an action that was completed in the past with implications at least to the time of the writer, the, per the person who is writing. And since scripture is timeless, when you see the perfect tense, it means, okay, this was done in the past and it's still good for you now and throughout eternity. Finished, paid in full, will ring out. Through eternity. That's good news. Verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation. And so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. For the Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken. And that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the others who had been crucified with him. And when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And, once, and, and at once there came out blood and water. So sometimes crucified victims were left on a cross Days after they died as a warning to the people. And you can imagine the decay. The vultures. It was the ultimate indignity. When the Romans needed a victim to go ahead and die. They would take a sledgehammer. And I'm sure the strongest guy among them. 
smash their legs, probably their shins. And this would render them unable to push up on that nail. And so they were unable to breathe. Along with the shock, they probably suffocated very quickly. The priest wanted the bodies down because at sundown, they're like, we're going to have a party. Can you go ahead and do this for us? Just imagine the callousness. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was about to begin. It was a high Sabbath, so Pilate agreed. Since Jesus was already dead, though, the soldiers thrust a spear into his side, which, again, would have been much easier if it was about here instead of there. When Jesus' side was pierced, blood and water came out of his body. Now, there's a lot of debate about the significance of blood and water, but there is little doubt that Jesus was dead, not temporarily unconscious, and that he was flesh and blood, not a spirit. While I will not speculate about the reason for the inclusion of this fact, it's important to note that Jesus did not have one bone in his body broken throughout the entire ordeal. His arrest, his beating, horrible beating, crucifixion, and this spear being plunged into his side. Not one bone broken. If you want a verse, Psalm 34, 21 will do. But it's more likely that John was referencing the command in Exodus 12, 10 and Numbers 9, 12. Excuse me, 12.10, I think I said that, and Numbers 9.12, that no bone of the Passover lamb should be broken. And we stand and say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John is likely the one who witnessed these events and who wrote them down so that we would Believe. That's his purpose for writing the book. And again, we're going to consider this, Lord willing, in much more detail in about three weeks. So before we read these last two, uh, five verses of our text, where we're going to encounter Nicodemus and Joseph um, of Arimathea, we're going to go back Uh, And read the first time we encountered Nicodemus. Three times in the book of John and nowhere else in scripture. In John 3, where Jesus talked to him about being born again, the need to be born again. In John 7, where Nicodemus defended Jesus. And and then here in John 19. So go back. Let's go back to John 3. And it's going to speak to John's purpose and the way it all comes together at this moment. Verse 1, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, not thank you, uh, I appreciate you saying that, uh, No, he said, truly, truly, I say it to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter 
the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born again when he is old? Is sarcasm likely on display, but there were probably questions swirling in his mind as well. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus may have been saying to Nicodemus, look, I know you get this, but it's beyond what you can rationally work out in your mind. Even though it's very clear, it's a very reasonable faith, a rational faith. I'm talking about belief when I say faith. There's flesh, there's spirit. And you don't see the wind, you don't know the, where the wind comes from, where it goes, but you know it's real. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony very likely, Jesus speaking to him with the royal we, with royal language. And this was not lost on Nicodemus. If I have told you earthly things and you do not, you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So when Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, he was trying to, to be private, hoped nobody would see him. He had questions, but he didn't want anybody to know. He was asking them directly to Jesus. He knew the scriptures as well as anyone in Israel. But Jesus informed him, you've missed the very one to whom all scripture points. That's to me. When Jesus used the example of the snake in the wilderness being lifted up for the healing of the people, something stirred, no doubt, in Nicodemus' mind and in his heart. I imagine Nicodemus, like the rest of us, would think, wonder why God would do that. Wonder why the way to be healed from a snake bite is to look on a brass serpent that had been fashioned and raised up. Just look on that serpent and you'll live. And a lot of people said, there ain't no way I'm looking at that. That is the dumbest thing I've ever, oh, you know, they die. But then the people who looked would live. So Nicodemus probably had, had thought about that. In John 7, when the Sanhedrin wanted to arrest Jesus, Nicodemus spoke up for him, which was risky. He, his reputation took a hit that day. But this indicated some movement in his heart and mind. It is possible, and in fact probable, that Nicodemus was among the crowd 
that watched Jesus being lifted up on a cross so that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. And now at the end of John 19, Nicodemus takes his stand along with Isaiah 53 rich man, Joseph. Look at verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. By the way, it's very significant, not only that that Nicodemus came by night sort of to hide, but it also indicates he was in spiritual darkness. Now he comes in broad daylight, although the day is moving on. He comes with Joseph. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Look, these tombs were expensive. And they would be used multiple times, maybe for families, you know, entire families. But no one had ever been laid in this tomb. Almost certainly it was Joseph's. So, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Not only did Joseph and Nicodemus defile themselves before the Sabbath, before the feast, by touching a dead body. They risked their own lives by claiming Jesus' body. Why would they do it? I think God had opened their eyes. And they figured it out. They had figured it out. They knew who Jesus was. Now, I'm going to go so far as to speculate. This is just speculation. But I'm going to speculate that if if Mary of Bethany was the only one who had known that Jesus was going to die, who had understood that he was saying that he was going to die when she anointed his body, and we really don't know whether she understood that or not. I'm going to go so far as to speculate that Nicodemus may have been the only one to understand and believe that not only would Jesus die, but that he would rise from the dead. It was so improbable that he would die the way that he did, and yet he prophesied it all along. Nicodemus, standing there at the cross, looking at it all, putting it all together, believed with all of his heart. This is 100% speculation, but hopefully educated speculation. Either way, Joseph and Nicodemus fully declared their allegiance to Jesus in a way that none of the disciples, save John, did on that day. This morning, we witnessed a baptism in the first service, Owen and Ella Shambly in this service, Kara Manning. As they declared their lives fully committed to Jesus. They surrendered their lives to his lordship. They're going to be constantly doing this through the years. We all do, don't we? We all have to understand over and over. My life is not my own. 
I belong to Jesus. This is not an easy life. What happened to Jesus has happened to millions of his followers. He said it would be that way. Not that they were all crucified, although quite a few were in the first two to three centuries of the, of the church. But people have been martyred. Millions of people have been martyred. And so the question is, as we stand at the cross, are you willing to follow Jesus? If Christianity is simply an intriguing idea, if you were intrigued like Nicodemus was that first night, but it goes no further than that, or if... If Christianity is simply a way to find meaning in your life, if you're not committed to the person of Jesus Christ, who was so committed that as God, he became flesh to take our sins upon himself so that we might live. If you're not that under committed, if you don't understand and you don't commit at that level, then your relationship with him will last no longer than the ease of following him last. But this one that we have witnessed this morning, Jesus, the last Adam, who lived the perfect life that Adam was supposed to live but couldn't or didn't, he lived that life. This one who died for us and rose again is worthy of our trust. He's worthy of commitment of our whole lives to him. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.